2: I love how Kyron's just like, that's so true. (laughs) It's like, oh, she she would push me down a flight of stairs if it came down to it. And Kyron's like, you're so right. Okay, Annabeth will be going on the quest.
3: to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Emily, a classics
2: scholar-ish. And I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant.
3: And today we're talking about episode three, the Percy Jackson TV series. And we are also joined by two very special guests, uh, Erica and Carter from the Seaweed Brain podcast. Would you like to introduce yourselves?
4: Good morning from Honolulu. It's Erica and Carter from Seaweed Brain. Thank you for having us officially on Monster (laughs) Donut for the
2: first time.
5: Yes, it is. Hi.
2: Before we start talking, spoiler warning up front, all four of us read the three Greek and Roman series ahead of the show's release. So spoilers for all three of those will be fair game in this episode. Thank you for joining us for one of, we can already tell, one of the most iconic episodes of this entire series. It's so good.
4: (laughs) I was literally thinking about as because we haven't recorded our episode three yet and i'm gonna be like when we record our episode three i'm sure i'm gonna be like well emily said that this thing is this thing from history and <laughs> i reference you like i would reference like TheoA.com. you know that website
3: <laughs> oh my god well that's an honor this is
2: just me doing research right now for our episode <laughs> And just in case the people listening don't know your voices can you tell us a little bit about your relationship to percy jackson and what seaweed brain is
5: yes seaweed brain is a podcast that we've been doing for three and a half years now um it's been a read-along podcast the impetus of which is that we are childhood friends who grew up with the books and um specifically i spoiled one of the big twists of the house of hades for erica very energetically <laughs> when we were um i want to say in first year of high school together so
4: wait which one? <laughs> oh, i was famously in love with nico d'angelo as a kid um, erica had like that, multiple uh... accounts
5: that were like erica d'angelo something something yeah
4: whether i loved him or wanted to be him is still up in the air mm-hmm. still to this day up in the air i would say but yeah carter ran into the cook library um where we used to hang out freshman year because we were friends with the librarians, and um, was like, Nico ran up, like, this is not like a silent, silent section, but it is like a you should keep your voice down kind of section, mm-hmm. and was like, Nico's gay! <laughs> Good luck, Erica. You're not going to date him. And I was like, why would you do that
2: to me? <laughs> Before we jump in, I have to tell you all about the most surreal experience I had at the Met yesterday. I went because we didn't really get the chance to explore the way I wanted to at the premiere because we made it like two feet into the Greek No literally Carter
4: was so mad that we didn't do like a personal private walk through the Met.
2: Yeah so I went back and there was this big crowd around the Perseus statue at first um, but then as we walked up to it the majority of the crowd cleared except for this one woman and her little blonde son and she was telling him the story of Perseus and I was like whoa what is going on right now <laughs> but it was not with the level of nuance that this episode will give the story of medusa unfortunately <laughs> yeah she was just like and she was evil and uh turned people into stone and so he cut off her head and i was like all right
4: <laughs>
3: so someone clearly has not watched percy jackson she was uh, more of <laughs> a
2: child of
4: athena that mom mm, yeah. mm-hmm.
2: let's get into this episode
3: oh yeah there's so much okay so first of all, I was like pausing on every little thing in this attic because I was like, I need to see what what's up here. I got to figure this out. But I will say only one thing really jumped out to me, which is like on all these panning shots sort of just establishing everything was that there was a golden set of scales with one like down completely and the other up completely, just like in the backdrop. And I was staring at it and I was like, nemesis. That's mm-hmm. my that's my one <laughs> Easter egg. I quote unquote.
4: Found. That's beautiful. But Nemesis and also the scales are imbalanced. Like what a great setup for the rest of the series. Yeah. It's
3: just because I was thinking a lot about how we've set up already like this idea of like justice and revenge and glory like in episode two. This is one of those things where I don't know if it's intentional or not, but the unbalanced scale, that's that's got to be, because that's one of the only things you can really clearly tell what it is.
4: Yeah. I love that this episode hasn't even hit the public yet, and we're already at the conspiracy level of, like, that time that Clarice said the word revenge, that was an Ethan
3: Nakamura
2: oh. Easter egg.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Everything's an Ethan Nakamura Easter egg. That's true. That's
2: true. <laughs> I found it interesting that Percy's minotaur horn was, like, already among them. Yeah. Just... The idea of him already being placed among all of these, like, heroes of the past. Before his quest has even started, he's, he's up uh-huh. there. Yeah. So then we get the oracle, and we, of course, get Gabe giving the prophecy.
3: I was thinking about this. Does, does, does that kind of vision happen in later books, or is it just in the first book?
2: The next time we see the oracle give a prophecy is in book three, and she just kind of speaks it into everyone's mind in her own voice. And then she doesn't speak the book five prophecy it's on her necklace which i zoomed in to see if like she had the necklace that the Mm -hmm. the prophecy is in i couldn't really tell but it might be (laughs) my
5: memory of the lightning thief is that even though it shows like she like spits out a diorama of like gabe and his friends playing poker like it's still her voice right to me that was the most unsettling aspect
2: of this is that that's what i was surprised gabe
5: delivers it in his voice like it sounds like like some guy from queens maybe just talking (laughs) just saying whatever giving it to you like it were a sandwich order where you have to have the hot peppers on it you know
2: yeah it made me wonder if the oracle is also looking for weaknesses like like we established that the monsters do later on or if she's like looking for a figure in your mind that will shock you into listening or like an image in your mind that'll shock you into listening
4: Did anyone else have a mini panic when he only read half of it? And then we were like, oh my god, did they cut the prophecy
2: in half and then they complete it in the next scene? I was like, oh my, what a choice. I did have a a split second where because we just finished Tower of Nero, I thought that the prophecy was going to be sort of in chunks, Mm. maybe. (laughs) We would get it from different sources. But then I was like, no, it's probably for dramatic effect. (laughs) So the section of the prophecy we get here. I'm going off of memory, so my quote is slightly wrong, but, uh, you shall go west and face the god who has turned, you shall find what was stolen and see it safely, safely returned. returned. And then we head into the selection ceremony, which is a shift. Camp, camp has selection ceremonies now.
5: <laughs> it's sack. It looks sack.
2: <laughs> and it's, like, in the dining pavilion, but the tables
4: are gone. What poor, (laughs) like, wind spirits had to carry those heavy stone tables out of the dining pavilion for this (laughs) 30-second choosing ceremony?
5: Where he's already made his (laughs) (laughs) joys.
2: Where he's already made his joys, and one of them isn't even there. I wondered, because, like, Kyron has gathered all of the the greatest heroes at camp for Percy to choose from, and I wondered if Luke was standing there thinking that he was going to get chosen. Just because, like, who else does Percy have a relationship with here at camp? It just, it's like kind of the logical choice.
3: I know the first time I watched this episode through, I remember being like, why doesn't he pick Luke? Because that was a question in my head, or Chris. Like, I was sitting there, mm-hmm. and I was like, what's the dramatic justification for this choice? Because so I feel like in the books, at least, he's got a bit more of a relationship with Annabeth. Mm-hmm. But I, I did really like how that got resolved.
4: <laughs> we talked a lot about this, actually, on our episode two discussion uh, that I had never thought about before. From Luke's perspective, the fact that he does mm. not get chosen to go on this quest, mm. but also that he has to then watch his two besties who he got to camp with, like his brother and sister go on this quest with like the cool new kid who's going to like get more attention from his dad who is more cool than his own dad. Ooh, mm. ooh, that must like that must bite. That must backbite. Mm.
3: <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> I think we talked about this a lot in our like Lightning Thief episodes too. You know, kind of, you get a sense from Luke, like, especially later in the series, that he also, like, kind of knows that he's not Kronos's first
2: choice. Yeah, I, this thought I had, I think it's, like, two scenes from now when he gives him the shoes, because I we know. had our whole discussion around the lightning thief, but also long after the lightning thief of, like, what exactly Kronos wanted from Percy when, and what exactly Luke wanted from Percy when Mm -hmm. and like what giving the shoes to him means what he's what he's trying to get out of it I was like did any of this work into his plan when he thought he might get chosen for the quest I have so many questions
3: I thought of uh, a new heartbreaking thought about the shoes when I was watching this although that's skipping ahead a little bit if we want to talk about first the scene between Percy and Grover that comes before
2: the only note I made on that one was just Percy choosing Grover because Grover's the one who told him about his mom in the first place. And, like, so that should mean no matter where they are in their relationship right now, that Grover is on his side and, like, knows where his priority is. I mean, it's a good move on his part, theoretically.
5: It's it's a good scene for their relationship. But it also, I think, is setting up this episode in particular. But also, to an extent, the rest of the quest's interpersonal dynamics really well in a way that is not quite the same as it is in the book. Like, where we have... Like an ideological conflict between Percy and Annabeth, as much as anything else, and an idea that Grover is like basically a social worker that he is here to perform certain
4: conflict resolution, conflict counseling.
5: resolution counseling yes. functions to people. To like, I don't know. To me, it's really effective, and it, it like get, gets over this hump of answering like, why not Luke? Why not Chris? As well, like that you have mm-hmm. like someone he really actually trusts and someone who. He really actually does not trust, but knows things about him, has, like, insights and willingnesses that someone else necessarily wouldn't bring to the table. And, like, in in this choosing scene, like, Luke and, like, Luke looks so blank it's very interesting that his face is giving you nothing and that Dior is giving you, like, still a little bit of disappointment. <laughs>
4: mm-hmm. That she still thought that she might get chosen. That is so Clarissa. of her. She is, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she just is so disconnected from reality in so many ways, that character. I, now, now, though, I'm questioning because... Percy and Annabeth spend so little time together in the show version of the days at camp. Percy says later he didn't choose Luke because Luke said I would always be on her side. Um, Mm. And there's the whole mom thing. But Percy could have just chosen Luke and not chosen Annabeth. You know, it could have just been Luke and Grover because that relationship is switched a little bit in the TV show and the fact that he chooses Annabeth, I'm going to count that as a point towards true truthing. Like <laughs> He knows, he knows inherently that they are meant to do this together.
3: Part of me wondered, like, because he knows Luke and he likes Luke, but he doesn't like, no, no, Luke, you know? Like, he's, 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 they've been hanging out for a couple of days, mm-hmm. you know? And so I feel like maybe also Percy's thinking like, oh, someone's going to betray me and I feel like He's not sure what's going to happen, but like we talked about this in episode two, like Luke at this point is the only character that has not made Percy field betrayed. (laughs) So I feel like part of him is also like, I don't want to give him the chance to betray me.
5: I think that's right, because they talk cool. about that later in this episode as well, where he's like, I have like, I th- believe that Grover is not going to betray me at this point. And I think that if Annabeth were to do it, I know exactly what it would entail. It would mean like her yeah. pushing me down the flight of stairs to get us where we need to be for this quest.
3: Yeah, like it feels like he's almost trying to control the outcome where he's like, all right, I'm controlling who's going to betray me, so I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he thinks the Annabeth's never going to be his
2: friend. Yeah. So it's important that he has someone there who like just can't fit the prophecy while Luke could. Oh, that's a good point. She can't betray him if if he doesn't call her friend. (laughs)
3: Although, this made me think, too, about that moment, like, on the way to Vegas, where she's like, you're my friend, and how much more power that moment will have because of this. Whoa! Yeah, it's like, don't
2: call me that.
4: Don't call me that. <laughs> yeah, and the fact that Percy specifically calls his mom to say, I think I made a friend.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. The word friend. Buzzword. Ooh. Buzzword. <laughs> yeah. This scene between Percy and Luke, though. First of all, I zoomed way in on the coins because I'm me. <laughs> they all look like they're modeled off of real coins that we have have, like examples of um but one thing i thought was really interesting is every greek city state like has its own designs and they would change them up periodically and so the octopi those ones would have belonged to um i think was the one we have an example of it doesn't really matter there's no like meaning here but i just thought it was cool that they have like a variety of them that also look like they're probably from a variety of periods but it also looks like they have like three or four stamps that they've been using for all of them because there's a couple of each kind The other thing I really noticed in this scene, because of course I'm, I'm paying very close attention to Luke, right? Is his deep sigh before he says Maya, when he's showing Percy Mm -hmm. how the shoes work, he like heaves this big, like, (sighs) before he says it. And I was like, you know what? I don't think we've ever talked about the word Maya. Because I remember reading The Lightning Thief and I remember thinking to myself, yeah, Maya. Mm -hmm. That's May. Maya is Hermes' mother's name. Yes.
5: But it, but it also sounds also means like may. may oh
3: no it's literally the roman month maya is that became may is named after hermes's mom maya it's it's emily you just broke oh. me emily wait I...
5: hermes <laughs> is another twitching. mother dater
3: <laughs> no, no, no i'm gonna break you even more are you ready so it's i was looking up the word because i was like wait is it just roman or what's going on here it both means like this refers to maya the goddess or the month of may it also means good mother. And that form, Maya, is usually in... It's actually in Homer, and Odysseus uses it to refer to his, like, his, like, caretaker. Like, not his mother, but his, like, nurse, basically. And, like, exclusively, like, the vocative, which is what this is, like, which is the um, the case you use when you're, like, directly speaking to somebody. And then that got me thinking, because I'm sitting here and I was like, who decided on the code? Who decided the activation phrase? Was it Luke or was it Hermes? Because if it was Hermes, evil. Emily. Evil. Emily, why would you bring this? Why? Why? <laughs> I've been thinking so much
4: about May. Castellan.
3: And then it's, like, the deep sigh makes so much sense to me because it's, like, he has to say... And, like, his mom's name literally means, like, good mother, not, like, mom.
4: Uh, And we've been talking about how the only difference between Percy and Luke, the only reason why Percy doesn't join the dark side is because Percy gets his mom back and Luke never gets his mom back.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: And knowing that Percy's about to go on this quest to retrieve his mother where his mother is Mm unretrievable, that deep sigh.
3: (laughs) Also... They're in a box. And that also made me be like, did Hermes just ship these to him? Like,
2: did he even... Because like, Oh, he definitely didn't give them to him in person. Nothing else <laughs>
3: comes in a box, you know? Like, Riptide doesn't come with a box. us Invisibility Cap, t- to what the best of our knowledge, does not come with a box. So, I don't know. It got me It got me thinking a little bit. But I felt like that really informed the way I was reading uh, Charlie's performance in this scene. Because I was like, wow, you have to acknowledge your mom every time you use this shoes, this gift from your dad. Yeah, anyway,
2: so that's... Yeah, that's good. That's... <laughs> So to start our quest we get Annabeth saying goodbye to Thalia's tree which was very sweet and we get Percy being uh totally disrespectful about it and then we get we we cut to their ride into the city and we get this quote from Grover where he says "Heroes' quests are world-defining events they have made and broken empires altered the course of human civilization changed the ba- balance of power on Olympus And I was like, what's that last one? Say that one again. (laughs) But then uh, Grover continues that thought by saying, a quest is a sacred thing and to be charged with one is to be in conversation with the gods themselves. Also a baller line. (laughs) And then we get the bus scene.
4: This was the first scene where I was like, ah, yes, this could be like New Jersey. Like this was the first time that I was like, this rest stop is correct.
3: (laughs) I know when they're in the woods later I was like that is not New Jersey those trees are way too nice looking
4: the ferns the moss
3: (laughs) like that is that is northwest that is up
2: but I love Annabeth's attitude in this scene this whole like we're soldiers on a mission it's not a vacation. Like, she's just so... Yeah.
3: I love her in the convenience store, though, too, though, where she has all those moments where she's just like, what do I do here?
2: No, yeah, because it's like every moment we've spent with her is her just being, like, headstrong and all that resolve and certainty. And then the second she's alone, we just see her struggling to choose and just staring at the candy, which wasn't even on her list of things she was going to get. <laughs> That The fact that that vulnerability only comes
4: out when she's alone and the
2: boys can't see her, I think, is a crucial
4: character detail. Mm-hmm. She is still just yeah. a kid.
5: Yeah. Her her communication style is so... Like, the, the juxtaposition of her conversation with them and then her conversation in the convenience store I think is so interesting as well because it's giving the same to me. Like, at a high level, in both situations, she is... Like, direct, uncompromising, not showing any particular, like, EQ or not particularly, like, changing the way that she's presenting or, like, what she's saying situationally, which I think also, like, reveals a lot about her and where she is in this journey. Like, she didn't see any value in trying to be nice to the boys for the sake of being nice to the boys or for, like, the sake of getting along or creating a relationship with Percy, who she's basically just met. (laughs)
3: <laughs> i was thinking about that a bit too where i was like well she clearly wants to go on this quest but it's interesting because like you don't see her in the show making an effort to like be friends with percy so that like because if he's the one she's gonna want him to pick her mm-hmm. and he does end up doing it but like she's not like what is the effort she's putting in to like make sure unless she just thinks like Kyron will tell him oh yeah take annabeth like i don't i don't know what her thought process is
2: i mean that is how she ends up on the quest in the book basically But I feel like she's she's communicating in her own Annabeth kind of way by like, you know, fixing his strap like we talked about in the last episode because he was struggling with it and like pushing him into the water was actually helping him It was, (laughs) by forcing his dad's hand.
4: Her version of proving herself that she is meant to be here is not to make friends with the boys. It's to take care of the boys and to like they are her soldiers and to say, I'm getting you chips and sodas. Is that good? Great. Fulfilling Mm -hmm. my role.
5: Yeah, it's a theory of, like, yeah. hypercompetence and knowledge as justification for her presence, which is nice and also a bit sad and something that I think it's going to be nice to see her think more about. The
4: more time we spend <laughs> with mm-hmm. these characters when they were, like, 12, because, you know, we haven't talked about the Lightning Thieves for, like, three years, the more I am reminded so much of Carter and I's dynamic when we were, like, 10. Uh, <laughs> it's so
2: funny. <laughs> <laughs>
3: The real Persibeth, not Rick and Becky, Erica and Carter, all along. (laughs) I also wanted to flag the way Grover described what monsters smell was really interesting when they're on the bus.
4: New Lord just
3: dropped.
5: (laughs) I know.
4: Yeah.
3: Especially because when we talked to the visual effects people, they said that they actually designed, like, all of the ways the monsters crumble away is slightly
2: different. So <gasps> I was like, oh. Yeah, like, they're all very individual. That's so cool. And
3: also, like, in light with this, which I'll read, I'll read the quotes, I wrote it down. Um, Grover says, when he's talking about monsters sniffing you out, some are better at sensing your inadequacy, some your need for glory, shame. It's important to remember that whenever you've got to confront one. Wherever your armor is weakest, that monster is probably coming right for it. Nothing will stop them, not even death. Which I think is really interesting also because I made me think, since we've sort of set up in episode one that not everything that looks like a monster is a monster, I'm sort of looking for how we are defining a monster in this series. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if they operate like this, that's a way to define a monster. So I'm going to keep an eye on that. And then Annabeth and Mrs. Dodds talk.
2: Yeah. (laughs) This is so interesting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I love the line where he says, um, you're exactly what they say you are. The pride of Athena's offspring, perhaps the most formidable demigod child alive. Like, first of all, that's exactly right. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But also I was like, who is telling her story? Like, Annabeth hasn't even gotten to go on a quest yet. Like, who's talking about her? Who's seen her?
4: They literally have a live feed, like a ring camera at Camp (laughs) Half-Blood in the middle of that Hercules statue is just a live feed straight to Olympus. (laughs) It might be at Hades, too, because yeah. she's
3: actually being sent from Hades. From, mm-hmm. they, Hades they stream it to tabs. the
2: underworld, to the forges, to Poseidon's palace, mm-hmm. and to, to Mount mm-hmm. Olympus TV. <laughs> but it's, it's the kind of thing where you're like, you can assume if she is the pride of Athena's offspring that, you know, maybe Athena's been talking about her up there. Mm. But then you're like, how does this spread so far that it ends up with the, the Furies? Like, I assume she wasn't that when she was seven years old and they came after Thalia.
3: They did attack them before. There's like a whole back and forth where Mrs. Dodd's like taunting her about Thalia. So it's like, what happened there?
5: Yeah, I think they must have been conversing as it was happening. Yeah, Yeah.
4: similar to what it is now that like they're trying to pluck the forbidden child. They don't necessarily want to do harm to the other kids. They don't care about that. So they probably had another conversation. They were like, just give us Thalia.
5: We're already, I think through this interaction, getting a good balance between Megan Mullally doing a restrained but still delightful, amazing, foundational, believable Megan version Malally. of
4: sorry,
5: like sickening villainy, <laughs> like like in the line oh, where she like says off-screen. something like maybe if Talia had done a better job, she wouldn't be like what is she like. Oh, like yeah. a crowd, like a group of squirrels, wouldn't be using her to house their offspring or something. Like that line is so rotten.
3: Yeah. So
5: <laughs> classical, like Cruella De Vil. Oh, like she needs
3: to be over the top. A villain and everything. I love her.
5: But but then we have that juxtaposed against the rest of this, where it's really clear that megan Mallory is just like a woman at work. Yeah. Exactly. Like she's just here to accomplish a specific she's task. She's Yeah. Like the extent of her villainy is the exact same extent as you would imagine for like. Hades or for like any other like divine like primordial force that's just doing a job Mm -hmm. and like I think the negotiations with Annabeth do a good job of setting that up of establishing Annabeth as an independent person who has history with people and uh, a lore around her
2: yeah just the fact that Annabeth's story is like already being told and she already has a reputation when we see in the books how badly Annabeth wants to like leave something behind that she'll be remembered by and just getting to see it, it's already being built.
4: In four years, Mm. people will be, five years? In five years, people will be asking for her autograph on Mount Olympus, so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: So we get away from the Furies. Knife reveal. Yes. She throws it. That two second shot of the knife on the ground after it's been thrown, I was like, okay, we see you. I love that we
3: zoomed in a little too. I was like, oh, we gotta get that knife. We gotta get the detail. Yep. they need screen time mm. but they so they managed to escape the furies they they continue their kind of conversation into the woods as they're walking and one thing that really struck me about this scene was i think something we've sort of been talking about a little bit was just how much annabeth believes in like the sacredness of a quest like she really is like fully bought in like this is the quest this is the system this is the way mm-hmm. it goes this is this is how we are we don't ask for help we just do it this is part of it Mm -hmm. and Percy's just like what what are you talking about
2: it's that mentality that we'll see later in the episode too that she's just she there is a way that things are in her head and like if you try to make her question the way that things are in her head she's not having it and she just so deeply believes in like the rules that have been set in this world so far like in the way that things just work at camp and with quests and the way that her mom, I'll get into it later, but (laughs) just her full, you know, her full faith in her mother and everything, she just.
4: She is a traditionalist, Mm -hmm. where Percy has zero
2: respect for tradition, which is another point at which they're going to teach each other things. And it's also like in this scene, I was thinking about how she's worried about, she says that she's worried about calling camp because asking for help is basically like admitting weakness. And that's the kind of thing where you just immediately know that when things get hard, Annabeth might embrace that in a way that Percy won't want to or might be a little bit more mm-hmm. cautious about because she's looking for a way to prove herself.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, her fatal flaw is showing. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
5: This scene is so juicy. We, like, don't even have time to talk about Percy lampshading the forests of New Jersey because there is so much.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, this whole, like, why are you so afraid of who you are exchange? It's giving you're a coward Percy Jackson. <laughs> I was like, I can't wait to see that parallel. Grover is um, standing literally,
4: physically in the middle of the two of them, in the middle of mm-hmm. a pathway, like, as they are stopped on their journey. Can you hammer it in harder, um... The way that this dynamic is at a crossroads where they're going to have to choose how they're going to treat one another right now mm-hmm. as we go into the Garden Gnome Emporium. Yeah. And they're left still
2: separated by the end of it. Mm-hmm. Just what what Percy is looking for, or at the beginning of this quest, what he's looking for is someone who he knows is going to be consistently loyal and who is on his side always like Luke is on Annabeth's. Like he needs that loyalty and then seeing that like Grover might have that for the other person on the quest. Yeah, Who he knows has no loyalty to him.
5: Yeah, this is also when we get the protector reveal um, that he specifically Mm -hmm. worked with Talia and Luke and Annabeth. And we don't have time to resolve that. (laughs) It's just sitting, hanging over the next confrontation.
2: Yeah, it's that whole, why didn't you tell me? Like, he needs someone who is only there for him. And he's realizing he doesn't have that yet again. And this was something I loved so much about this episode was how much we're emphasizing the Annabeth and Grover connection here. Because when we talk about Annabeth growing up, it's almost always just about her connection with Luke and Thalia, but, like, there was a fourth person there in the end. Like, she didn't just have Luke at camp, she also had Grover for five years. Like, he was their protector. It was something that we didn't mention in the Luke scene at the beginning of the episode when Percy says he almost chose Luke instead of Grover, Luke immediately jumps to defend Grover because, like, that's his protector. Mm -hmm. And this was something I was really hoping to see out of the show was the Grover-Luke connection and especially the Grover-Annabeth connection and the scenes that focus on the two of them and their relationship because in the book we're only allowed to see that through Percy's eyes. Mm -hmm. And we actually, this was something we brought up in our John and Dan and James interview so we can cut their thoughts on their dynamic in here as well. Well, something that I've been thinking a lot about is that because we're in Percy's perspective in the book, we don't get much of Annabeth and Grover's relationship outside of what he sees of it. Um, so I've been loving all of the pieces of their dynamic that we've seen so far. Can you tell us anything about how you've approached that dynamic for the screen? I am a big believer that all
5: three sides of the triangle are important um, in any triangle. Um, and, and I think um, there's usually one that's the super that you kind of have to put a little more scrutiny into. And, and that was the one just sort of imagining what, um, what they are to each other, um, what their relationship means to Percy, not to make it all about Percy, but there is something about feeling like um, uh, there's a person who's your person and then realizing you, they belong to you. Um, and there's this other, um, this other friend in the dynamic that you have to find a way to make room for um, felt um, messy in, in a good way, and, and the kind of a knot um, we were going to love the three of them for watching them work so hard to untie um, and and find ways to um, to make room for, for for each of them to make room for the other two in their in their space.
3: Shall we move on to Medusa? Medusa,
2: I can't wait to talk about Medusa.
3: <laughs> I first of all, I was paying a, a close attention, as you might have guessed, to all of the locations, all of the statues and stuff, and. One thing I thought was really striking was the fact that there's all these I love the way it's set up visually cuz it's all these monsters outside that are like trying to get in and I was clocking like cyclops, cynocephali which are like the dog-headed people. And they're all like poised to attack. And I was just like this this is just setting her up as like she's defending herself. Mm-hmm. Like people have come for her specifically. They have come to attack and she is just like they're now just statues in her garden. It also kind of made me think about the Luke's mom in the book, the parallel where she has all the monsters outside, because that's what mm-hmm. Medusa's got going on right now.
2: Yeah, I, I had a similar thought because she has like all of the monsters outside facing the path and then all of the humans and non, non-threatening creatures <laughs> downstairs. But all the ones outside are posed as if they're there to protect her.
3: And But in her house itself, there's it's so warm and inviting and it's so full of life. Like, there's so much food. All of the decor is, like, plants, the wallpaper. She's, like, been baking cakes, making milkshakes for no... Like, I don't know if... I don't even know if she eats, but it's just so full
4: of, like... I was thinking... Because you see the diner. It's, like, there's her house and there's also the diner, the, like, rest stop. I was assuming... Is she, like, doing all the cooking for the diner in her own home?
2: Because <laughs> she had, like, that plate full of, like, donuts. I was like, is, are these supposed to be for the diner? Like, a table covered in candy. It was so... It was very pan
5: I feel like it is on one level, like, like the first level, like, I think baseline horror reference that they're trying to tap into is probably something close to like Hansel and Gretel, right? I was going to say Hansel
4: and Gretel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But
5: then I think that the like emotional truth of this is that she is like really lonely, right? Like, she's trying to
4: care for people.
5: Yes. Yes. Unlike the book description, it's not a trap. It seems like she genuinely just Mm -hmm. like wants to host a party and wants to always be prepared to host a party.
2: I also, the, the the quotes coming out of Medusa's I, mouth. I know. <laughs> <in this scene. laughs> but I, the first one that I wrote down was her, uh, we all choose who we make our monsters. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that it's a choice of like who you see as a monster is completely subjective. Mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Again, the
4: shift, for, the, the idea to the, to have Sally spell out this whole monstrosity theme so specifically at the very beginning of the series, <laughs> it takes yeah. away a lot of Percy having to figure that out on his own, but I'm okay with that because that was a lot of interiority and that took a while and that was like sea of monsters and that would have been hard to track in his own brain is how he's, you know, perceiving all of these things. So to like set it up right away, Sally Jackson, my mom, who's the smartest woman I know, told me not everyone who looks like a monster is a monster and he is going to
2: right away immediately start teaching that to um, Annabeth is is so good yeah i'm so glad that it's like being treated as a as a sort of thesis statement because i i feel like in the books we don't get too much of that like questioning what's a monster except in like very specific books that will be something that comes up but for the majority of the series that's not always something that we're thinking about Mm
4: -hmm. i don't think that they would have been able to set up this medusa scene in the way that they wanted to for the series had they not introduced that already
2: No, because you as an audience member have your own idea of what monsters are, especially if you've read Percy Jackson, you would go into this thinking, well, Medusa's a monster. Why would, why would I trust her when she starts questioning things like this and telling me to question things like this?
4: Like it was all in service of going through this book more mindfully into each of our interactions, which is something like, again, like Percy will retroactively do that in his own mind, like in the house of Hades, but that we get to go into each of these really thinking about it saves so much in the writer's room i feel like as far as like Mm -hmm.
2: how do we spin this so that we're sympathetic with this character having already set that up makes it so much easier and so much more interesting because now you can't take anything at face value especially from now on i mean we've had monster encounters before but this is like kind of one of the first real ones of the quest and having Mm -hmm. that be like an immediate questioning of of what everyone here thinks means that Mm -hmm. you can't sit still in your interpretation of any Greek myth that we encounter from here on. Mm -hmm. So, more from Medusa. Medusa starts to tell her story. But, I mean, before she gets into it, she says lines, like, saying that she's a survivor rather than a monster.
4: That is such a loaded word. Yeah. Because they don't say survivor of sexual assault, but... Mm -hmm. And they don't
5: betray it that way. Like, she tells a story Mm -hmm. about her relationship with Poseidon as being consensual and one where like he noticed her in a way that Athena and the other Mm -hmm. gods have not noticed her. But I do think
4: the use of that word leaves other possibilities and interpretations open, yes, to what we know the myth was. It's
2: intentional. Yeah. Yeah. And the later reference to Poseidon as a monster when she's talking to Percy. And it's just, I assume that she skipped over that part because she doesn't want to antagonize Poseidon completely just yet and lose Percy.
4: I also don't think that She, you know, as she says, like, she sees Percy as her own kid. Like, she doesn't want Percy to look at his mom as, like, having been manipulated and abused, you know? I feel like even if Medusa Mm -hmm. herself can look back on that story and be like, ah, yes, I was a survivor of something, she doesn't want to frame it that way for him and make him feel bad. Like, he was the product of something inherently manipulative.
3: I also think it's so interesting that, like, she's talking about how much she loved one god, and it was, like, a different god that ended up answering her, and the way she tells it, she's just like, that was... I was was looking for... I was looking out for one thing, and somebody answered, and it turned out that the person who answered it was a monster, Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking about, like, Luke and Crono's situation, too, where it's like, oh, and I think also what's happening a bit with Percy, where he's reaching out for his dad, he wants his dad, and who's is, who is answering him
2: hmm yeah yeah this moment is it's very much uh Medea telling her story in the lost hero. <laughs>
4: Oh, I thought you meant like on the steps of Corinth being like, <laughs> come listen to me, everybody. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, I'm, I'm talking about that scene in the mall where she's telling one version of her story and Piper mm-hmm. is standing there telling you no, she's lying while the boys are all believing her. And like, we're also at the same time getting a million very direct parallels to the woman who's talking. And you kind of have to choose who to believe mm-hmm. in that moment. Because we've talked a lot and we talked in that scene about the way the Greek myths will villainize women like Medusa or like the sorceresses. And so you have to question all of these stories about women. always believe women. (laughs) But but there are two women fighting in this room.
4: (laughs) That is what I love. The fact that they don't shy away from Annabeth's internalized misogyny is so important Mm -hmm. to me. Because Mm -hmm. we could have accidentally, you know how things have been going as far as Hollywood and women and girl bossery. Mm -hmm. And they're just being... Too much girl bossery all around and every Disney princess is the same personality, blah, 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 that whole thing. Like this allowing Annabeth to be a little bit misogynistic is so important to me because she is like she is 12 and she only believes what her mom has told her. Her mom might be a little bit of a misogynist as well. We know from antiquity that Athena was not a girl's girl. And she has like instilled that into Annabeth. Annabeth Mm -hmm. is going to have to learn how to become a girl's girl. Like not having that innately born into her is so important to me because a lot of girls go through this, you know?
3: Yeah, it's sort of the same way I feel about Piper and Heroes of Olympus too, where I'm like, no, she needs Mm -hmm. to like go through this. It's arcs. I feel like people, there's so many people that like, don't let the arc cook, you know? They're just like, no, they've gotta be completely 100% in the right from the beginning. And it's like, that's not a
4: story. There is a fear of allowing young girl characters to have faults Mm -hmm. and to have flaws or to allow women to do bad things. I.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> you have to let, like, the fact that women. I support women's rights as well as women's, women's wrongs, wrongs, which we can segue into the rest of this scene. Like, Medusa isn't the hero mm-hmm. of the... Like, she may not be a monster, but she's also not the hero, and she isn't doing everything necessarily perfectly, morally correctly. That doesn't mean I don't still feel for her and see her as a complete yeah. person who has
2: value and who has been wronged. And it's also is a part of Annabeth's personality that will we'll see, like, her immediate judgment of people and her her holding fast to the things that she believes in. Like, that's also a part of her dynamic with Rachel.
4: Mm. The misogyny.
3: <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> and it's also, like, it's interesting also, because, again, we bring out, like, justice. Like, as she says, like, my mother's always just, and that's one of the things that's questioned. So, like, this judgment and this sense of justice is, like, really, like, oh, I know what right and wrong is, and that's what I've been told my whole life. Like, I feel like I, I like that we're building it up in a bunch of different places that... And even having it pointed out in this episode it, as one of her qualities. Like with the scale at the beginning, I don't know. Like what what is justice? What is it? Mm-hmm. It's also interesting that we're introducing this idea, first of all, that Medusa doesn't like bullies. I don't know if we said that line yet.
2: Yes, that was another one that I had a big star next to. Because
3: <laughs> I think we've talked so much about how much Percy hates bullies in this book. And the, so the fact that Medusa... And, and we've also got like... Grover and Percy talking about bullies in their first scene together
2: yeah she says I don't like bullies when one shows up on my doorstep they end up spending a lot more time there than they planned for and then she says the gift the gods gave me is that I cannot be bullied anymore
3: yeah
2: those are some of her first lines in this scene putting Med- Percy and Medusa kind of on the same side here immediately
3: yeah it's also interesting the gift verse curse of it all because we've talked a lot about that for the curse of achilles or the blessing of achilles and something else that's interesting is Mm -hmm. i remember talking in our comic-con interviews with the visual effects people they mentioned um with her hair it's a curse and they were told like it's a curse as their directive so clearly the writers are thinking about it as a curse and yet they're also writing medusa saying it's a gift so they've got this
2: dichotomy in mind yeah i was thinking a lot about gifts from the gods in this episode because we have that line of medusa saying that like this is the gift that the gods gave me but we also have luke saying this was a gift from my dad about the shoes and annabeth and her cap and the whole issue around that at the end Mm. (laughs) the i went a slightly different direction with it which was that i was thinking a lot about like giving up your gift Mm. from the gods because luke in giving percy the shoes knows that those shoes are not coming back to him yeah and Annabeth at the end being like, fine, yeah, bury it. But like that kind of proves that the, the curse versus gift part of it. The fact that uh, Medusa can't give it up.
3: I was so fascinated the first time I watched the scene because I was trying to figure out what the turning points were.
4: As far as when, when she decides that she's mad at them
3: uh, yeah for when when does medusa become the monster medusa in this scene what where's the moment where we've decided especially with percy like where's the moment he
5: decides i think it's when she makes the offer right yeah to for, for percy Grover it's when she makes the offer
4: to kill um, Rover and annabeth and w- for medusa it's when he runs away from her
2: yeah i think the first turning point though is actually it's in this scene when Annabeth continues to not believe her and then specifically calls her a liar. Oh, yeah. And that just triggers something in her. Like, Annabeth Mm. Annabeth is officially Athena. And now it's, like, the next scene that we have with Percy and Medusa is like, okay, are you going to be Poseidon? Yeah. It's right after Annabeth says you're a liar where she's like, something is burning, right? Mm. Yep. Mm -hmm.
4: That is too good. I'm sorry. Writer's room, you said something is burning. Maybe it's the situation.
3: (laughs) (laughs) There's a really fun parallel as well, where it's like she's offering Percy, oh, ditch your companions, betray your companions mm-hmm. to get what you want, versus and Mrs. Dodds presents the same choice to Annabeth, and both of them, we pan on to the monster, and then at some point, Percy and Annabeth have left, and we don't know when.
5: Yes.
2: Yes, so good, so good. Yeah, the way neither of them even say a word mm-hmm. after, it, after that's offered, they just, mm-hmm. they just go and tell the mm-hmm. others to run, too. It doesn't matter how they feel about each other in the moment it's just that same oh my god the moment betraying First their friends <laughs> comes up it doesn't they don't even spare a word
5: yes the scene looks like an egg we, we haven't talked that much about the visuals no but this yeah. whole thing is a gigantic underground fire lit hall of statues that we're like hiding around
3: fire effect she's got lighting it actually reminded me of that scene in National Treasure. That's what I think about every time I see that. Yes, me
4: too. <laughs> I thought National Treasure too. Every time somebody like goes down into the underground and it's like vaguely lit with like browns and yellows, and there are spooky descending staircases, National Treasure.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Dan shots. Oh my oh, god. Dan Schatz. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dan shots. <laughs> it's so funny, Dan. You're listening to this. We are actual National Treasure stands. We did not just say that for you. <laughs>
3: I also want to talk a little bit about something that came up in our conversations with uh, the costume designer because we asked her what character had the most interesting costume for her and she said Medusa.
2: Yeah, we'll put that clip in here and then we'll talk about it because I have thoughts. Um, Tish, speaking of which, I was really curious. uh, For you,
3: which character was the most interesting when you were sort of developing their style, like their personal style as a character?
0: Well, I think that... um, an intriguing character for me was the was the character of of Medusa because mm. she was going to be unlike other Medusas. The producers really wanted her to be portrayed as a sympathetic character, as a vic- person who had been um, victimized. And so I turned to imagery. That initially was reminiscent of antiquity. I was looking to ancient Greek garments because I always tried to go back to the historical references, and yet I had to bring it up to the contemporary world, or at least, if not exactly contemporary, then at least, you know, within within this this century, and. So the the final result, working with my um, illustrator, was almost like a fortuny uh, pleated garment that you see like in the in the twenties. Mm-hmm. And uh, we dyed the fabric to resemble a Greek statue, uh, like an alabaster with a little bit of of uh, like taupe in it. Uh, we created the pleats. And um, you know, just have them drape around around her body, and put her in a like a beautiful a beautiful dress. And the producers really wanted to have her in a hat. Then that was almost like the the start of of the um, ideas for what I was going to eventually put her in. Is that they wanted to have a hat. As a reveal, um, rather than having her in a like in a turban or having this you know mass of snakes around her head, they really were wanting her, the audience to develop some sympathy for her. So she was a, a a challenge and very rewarding for me in the end. Medusa
2: looking like a statue is such a cool choice. Like she's trapped there too. And
3: there's no statues in her house. They're in the basement. They're not in the house. And she's got, like, a very ornate... Like, there could be statues. They'd fit Mm -hmm. in. Her style, she's got, got, like, the Tiffany lamps. They'd fit in. But instead, Mm -hmm. it's, like, she's the statue in her house, like, as she's living her life. And then it's, like, she goes downstairs, and it's almost like she's joining the statue. Like, it's, like, all of these people, like, collected from a bunch of different eras. Like, I don't know if you all were looking at the costumes
4: mm-hmm yep exact I was like pausing on each of the statues to look mm-hmm. for easter eggs for sure mm-hmm. and there was the first one they see
3: that's like the horror jump scare I was staring at there because it's a woman and she's like holding her hand up as though she's like reaching for the veil oh and I was like hold
4: on hold on <laughs> No, listen, I, was, I did not want to so? be the one to say it. I did not want to yeah. be the one to say it. the whole Athena <laughs> monologue, mm-hmm. I don't think it's that thinly veiled. Veiled, hey, hey, get it? Hey. Ha I don't think it's that thinly hat veiled. Mm-hmm. Th- that queen. That's the first statue
3: you see. It's like, that's who she's coming down. To. Like, I'm just like, what happened here? Something happened and it was really
4: sad. She just wants to be seen. Yeah. But because of what has happened to her. Yeah she is afraid now of being seen. And I think that this is the crucial point about this portrayal of this character and allowing us to be at odds with her in our mission to like ultimately chop her head off is that she went through something horrible, but she isn't handling it that well. And those, both of those Mm -hmm. things can be true. Like we see on the outside, like you said, like all the monsters and we immediately sympathize with her. But when we get down into her, literally into her basement, like into her emotional secrets and like all like deep deep inside of her and her vulnerability we see that she has been hurting other people in the same way that she was essentially hurt and that that is in itself like not okay and that we can sympathize with her and what happened to her but also see that like she is a hurt person who is hurting people Mm -hmm. let women be fully developed realized people i support women's wrongs i am so happy with her portrayal
5: yeah She in in this monologue she she is doing that move where she says like the gods are rigid and they can only see people one way and then she turns around and she's like Annabeth you are self like you are self righteous like your mother you are your mother therefore I'm gonna kill you you know like it is the turn that is so that is so satisfying where you can watch her like her like sort of like twisted like puzzle logic not really like. (laughs) <laughs> cling together, but for that to be something that she needs to spell out for herself mm-hmm. because she she is keeping alive this version of, of events and of her victimhood as the central narrative in, in her life yes. and through which she can justify all other actions.
3: And I think it's also interesting because this is where on the second watch I realized this is sort mm-hmm. of the turn into monstrousness for me, for her because we have that whole speech I read at the beginning of Grover explaining what monsters do. How they draw you out through your insecurities and I think it's really interesting because she's talking to Percy like your friends are gonna betray you let me help you and so she is preying on his insecurities his greatest insecurity at the moment and then when she turns to Annabeth she says you're just as self-righteous like you're you're self-righteous as your mom like and that made me think like is this her biggest insecurity like this maybe she's not right
4: Yeah, she has this very, like, in order to survive in the world, she has created a set of rules and um, pillars about the way that the world operates, and that is the only way she has, like, managed to work her way through her own, like, traumatic upbringing, and if none of that is true, then how is she supposed to go about her life? So she has to trust that her mom is right and that everything is happening for a reason.
5: Yes. And we get the final temptation for Percy, which is along the same lines. Like, she's like, you have an opportunity... To, to deviate from your father's path. Yes. And, like, like you could betray him and save your mom. Will you?
3: Yeah. She says they're sisters, which I thought mm-hmm. was such an interesting line. She's like, we're, we're sisters.
5: Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know what I was thinking about? Because it, we talked about in our first episode of the idea of, uh, medusa and sally as like two sides of the same coin and that like sally using her head at the end is kind of justice for both of them and in a sort of twisted way um but then i was thinking about like how's sally going to feel when she finds out percy cut medusa's head off like i mean she tells her son that story however many times and tells him over and over she's not the monster and then she finds out he killed her like that's gotta be like a heart drop mode
4: okay i don't know if you guys picked this out you may have because you're very smart and you go frame by frame through the series but i was pre-watching episode one last night and i heard a line that i hadn't heard before which is Mm -hmm. when they're in the greek room at the met and um chiron says these statues remind us what we're capable of and i was like Mm -hmm. oh no the good and the bad and that Mm -hmm. this is this moment where percy realizes that he is capable of the thing that his mom warned him against exactly exactly
2: (laughs) Yeah, and just that image of Percy with the head like mirroring Perseus, but it's like clumsy and through the screen door. And Annabeth and, like, gets is from behind. watching
4: him through the screen door. Let's talk about the metaphor of Annabeth watching him through the screen door from inside of the house. It was a little, the domestic sphere. I was like, first of all, she cannot like, She cannot be there like she is watching him this is his quest and he is in the position of power you know that like he is the one who is slaying the monster and like that isn't her and she is like very much like technically in the back seat on this quest and that sucks for her and then also of course her like internal monologue right now thinking about like what what was medusa talking about what was medusa talking about rescuing your mom Mm -hmm. what is going on and she has so many complicated feelings Mm -hmm. towards him in this moment Ooh,
5: she's in the dark and that choice. Yeah, they they linger on her mm. face. Yeah. <laughs> As Percy is off doing his things, they they don't they never sh- even show Percy's perspective.
2: They don't even show his face.
3: <laughs> interesting, too, cuz this is like a very big myth callback that's not in the like like the Perseus myth and the Medusa obviously is in the book, but this moment of him using the head to have the monster that's actively attacking to ward her off, like protecting Andromeda. Um, mm-hmm. behind him, like that is that's the Andromeda Perseus moment. Like, there's a sea monster coming for her, and he like uses the head. It was also interesting. I didn't. I again, I was looking more into it again, and this is something I never brought up before. But he, and this is kind of genius of Rick, honestly, is he Perseus the myth, the, the hero uses flying Hermes's flying sandals and the helm of darkness from Hades to mm-hmm. defeat Medusa in the myth, which I completely forgot mm-hmm. about. So it's just like, oh wait, we they were really paralleling that moment with like all of these different things. Um, the little baby, yeah, versions. The little baby <laughs> versions
5: of all those tools.
3: <laughs> um, like he's really becoming
2: Perseus the hero. And then we get potentially my favorite scene in this episode. First of all, the opening shot of Grover in his converse and like the of his feet, like the the way the shoes don't fit him and his legs are so skinny compared to his <laughs> uncles and just like this kid staring at someone who was a hero to him, and who went on this great quest, and like this is as far as he made it, and like that immediately following mm. the direct callback to like the Perseus statue, and Percy like looking at the Perseus statue, and both of them looking at these heroes, and kind of having to face the reality of what what who they were and what happened to them, and even that's like Annabeth meeting Medusa as well.
4: They're mm. like, no, I
2: I wasn't just like you, I, I was
4: you. That is her version of that. I feel like in this episode, yeah,
2: yeah. And then we get, we get, we continue to get stellar Grover moments throughout this entire scene, (laughs) but we have this moment where, you know, Percy and Annabeth start arguing, and it's first Percy suggesting that they leave the hat on and bury the head in the basement, and then Annabeth asking him rightfully about what his real intentions are now that she knows that Sally is still alive somewhere, and also Percy then bringing up the offer from Electo, and then Grover cutting in and, like, basically just being like have some empathy percy (laughs) like the hat was a gift from her mom and you're trying to bury it with medusa's head and she's about to go along with it like think about that for two seconds she literally did not even
4: hesitate she was like if this is what's Mm -hmm. best for the quest i will do it her lack of being in touch with her own emotions is beautiful (laughs) she said Mm -hmm. I will act like this isn't crushing my soul to tiny, tiny, tiny pieces. Not in front of these boys. I will not cry in front of these boys.
5: Because it's not just like about Percy not having empathy. It's that like Percy isn't being thoughtful about it. But they anime are miscommunicating. Is choosing also not to volunteer this information. And so Grover has to step in and be like both like th- like both of you are, are not understanding each other because you're not giving each other the opportunity to understand each other. And it, it, it's like an intervention of both empathy and information.
2: And Grover, I just, he's such a perceptive person, and he's so skilled at, like, seeing the people around him clearly. And, like, just that repetition throughout the episode of, like, being seen, but Grover sees both of them so clearly, and that's why he's able to, like, work them through this argument with each other. It's just every note he hits goes straight to the core of the person he's arguing with. He really is the heart Absolutely. of the trio. He is empathetic. He is understanding.
4: He is in touch with nature and with the world around him. And he listens. That is the classic, sorry, not to be all earthbender here, but that's the classic (laughs) earth powers, nature magic (laughs) trope is that where everybody else fight, 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 violence, violence, attack, attack, the person who has the nature magic, their skill is to be quiet and to listen and to be present. And I've never felt that way about Grover before, but
2: it is so obvious now in this portrayal of the character i think grover might be my favorite character right now honestly (laughs) grover might be my favorite character in the show yeah
4: i just see so much potential for bringing out the um climate change subplot you know in this series like with grover being so sympathetic i really think that there is a lot Mm. of work to be done as far as bringing out the whole humans have destroyed the earth thing going
2: forward Mm mm-hmm But he's also, like, he's such a a great tool for getting to the emotional sides of these characters because Annabeth Mm -hmm. doesn't want to offer up that information herself. And Percy, at least in the books, won't really do that himself either. And I just, I love this moment where he gets Percy to open up and he tells them all how alone he's feeling. He doesn't know what to think or who to trust. And this was, I, when I watched the Medusa scene, I was kind of surprised at how little reaction i got from percy to the fact that he had just cut off the head of a, a living woman <laughs> but in this moment i feel like we can't lose the fact that here percy has just killed someone who he was taught his whole life wasn't at fault and who he walked in saying that they could trust because he trusts his mom and then he had to he killed her it's a moment it's the moment that i knew that like this wasn't something he was taking as lightly as it seemed because he just He knows someone's going to betray him. He doesn't feel like he has Grover. He doesn't feel like he has Annabeth. And he went into this thinking that he at least had his mom's word. And it ended with him having to do something terrifying. Like we've talked about in both episode one and two, Percy has so little to hold on to throughout all of this. Like he's been alone. Like we mentioned, everyone, he thought he could hold close and trust no matter what, has done something to leave him feeling adrift with Luke being the only consistent source of comfort for him which is bad (laughs) (laughs) and we talked a lot in the first series about how percy keeps this kind of thing to himself most of the time and it's actually really rare that he'll confess something like this to anyone outside of the reader and so i love that Mm -hmm. that that's something that grover immediately breaks like episode three immediately breaks through that
3: then we get i think one of the most tiny but to me Striking adaptational changes is during her monologue, Medusa's the one that says she wants to ship them to Olympus.
5: Yes. So good. Yes. We, we motivate the scene so well and so differently, where like Medusa is like, I'll ship you to Olympus because the gods need a reminder of my story and the lessons that it holds. We also like get the motivation of like Medusa's head is a dangerous object and we have to get rid of it somehow. And like, like this is our solution, like batteries exactly. And, and like this is Percy being like we're not gonna like keep the hat on it. Like we have to find something else.
4: Annabeth using the exact word, it's impertinent, yeah. and Percy saying, I am impertinent, and Annabeth and Grover saying, but we're not. <laughs> you actively watch Percy, like, corrupting the two of them and using his backwards logic to convince them that this is fine. This is, like, so, like, it's so they're 12-year-old kids, you know, and that they're getting into yeah. trouble because Pure they're, Peer pressure.
5: Like,
2: <laughs> peer pressuring, yeah. I loved the I am yeah. impertinent moment because I was just, like, hit all at once with the fact that I had just... I I just hadn't heard a single line from the book in the past forty minutes
1: and was <laughs> loving
2: it. <laughs> like
5: I'm impersonant. <laughs> no, nothing.
4: Impersonant.
3: Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, that's a great pun. He's impersonant. Yeah. That's better than um, <laughs> Now, Um, I was gonna say also, as part of her monologue when she's talking about it though, she says at one point, like you should you could have shown your father what it means to stand up for someone you love. Mm-hmm hmm. And to me, that also kind of it felt like he was trying to find a way to still do that when he sent the head where he was like, for no. sure, like he heard what she said, he was listening and he was like, she is right. But also she's um
2: attacking me. So, yeah. And we talked a lot about this moment in the book, because in the book, it comes from her saying, do not be a pawn of the Olympians. Um, and he thinks he thinks back on that and sends it to them as sort of a message. And I do think that he's doing the same thing here. Mm-hmm. Even if he tells Annabeth and Grover that, you know, maybe this is tribute. Maybe this is tribute in a way. For Percy, it likely all just comes back to what Medusa said here about proving what actually caring for the people in your life is. So at the end of this scene, Grover says, you didn't choose to be demigods. We didn't choose to be on this quest. But we can decide that as long as the three of us are together, none of us are going to are gonna be alone. hmm I had two thoughts here. (laughs) One was that it reminded me of Sally's line in the first episode of we are unbreakable as long as we have each Mm -hmm. other. Um, But then also it made me think about some of the lines that Percy has about Annabeth later in the series. It it reminded me of the moment in House of Mm -hmm. Hades um, where we had a conversation around fate and about Percy like choosing Annabeth and saying that like staying together is his fate and that he is he's choosing that and making that true. A lot of choice in this episode.
3: Yeah. There's a lot of choice in this episode.
2: Uh, a lot of, you may not feel in control of your fate, but you can choose who you make a monster out of, and you can choose who you make a friend yeah. out of, and that, that alone is going to determine some of the outcome. Mm. Yeah. All right. It's just the Lynn scene after that. The Lynn right? scene. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Our first glimpse at Lin-Wenwell Miranda. The... <laughs>
3: what was that one review that was like
2: that was like (laughs) this the the casting was all wrong and he he wasn't right for the role and I was like he's here for two seconds (laughs) you didn't even see him that person was real
4: mad about Lin-Manuel Miranda
3: (laughs) they were just waiting they were like come on
4: I enjoyed that he did a little bit of humming Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. um, elevator because now if episode 5 isn't a musical is it 5 I think I it's by- six. We take note. Six. Yeah. Six. We take a zebra to Vegas. If episode six isn't a musical, I still get to be validated by it. Lynn. Did in fact sing in the show.
3: In <laughs> <laughs> a falsetto too. He was.
2: <laughs> Dude,
3: does anyone know what song that was?
2: It's the theme from Arthur by Christopher Cross. Chris Cross. Yeah. <laughs> great. Grace. Great song choice. Honestly. <laughs>
4: Fits in with the theme of the easy listening
2: music that we know the elevator plays. Yeah, um, but also the lyrics are just very Percy Jackson.
4: And the reveal of putting the key in and getting the button, the extra 600th floor button, that was cool. I love the lights like brightening on his face as he walks into the Olympian causeway. Yeah. I can't get over every time they show the exterior of the Empire State Building. That's Canada. <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, uh. I'm so intri- intrigued by the choice to film that portion, like, on the streets of Vancouver
2: and not when they could have done it in the volume. The volume. Yeah.
5: Yeah.
2: <laughs> they were like, all that matters is that we get the Met right, right? <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody knows. But it's true. Nobody knows what
2: the exterior of the Empire State Building looks I literally, like. every time I walk past it, I don't realize I'm in front of it. <laughs> <laughs> So to wrap us up, we at the end of uh, uh, every one of our episodes give the section that we talked about or the book we talked about a bead, like what bead we would design based on the Aww. events of that section. And so, what what bead would you give this episode at the end of the summer?
3: I'm debating between two.
2: Oh yeah, I'm debating as well.
3: <laughs> I think I'm gonna go with the uneven scale.
4: Mm. Oh, that's a good one, Emily. I am going to go with two clapping Seder hands because... <laughs> we
3: didn't even talk about the consensus, consensus song. song.
4: Ega, John Steinberg, Ega. Literally, Ega. The, <laughs> the emotional oh. journey of the characters, um, Grover being the social worker and allowing Annabeth and Percy to really connect for the first time and for the three of them to bond in this episode is the most important thing that happened.
3: Also, like Jonathan Steinberg apparently wrote the words of the consensus song, Erica. So... This is just further evidence that there may be a
4: musical episode.
2: Mm. Listen. <laughs> Robert
4: Kiki at the premiere?
2: I believe it. <laughs> I might go with Medusa's hat, like the the veiled hat because yes, that moment that, that like chilling moment where she takes it off. Incredible. And the snake Lets her hair down? Yeah, I know. Let this be a lesson.
5: Oh. When a woman lets her hair down, it's to kill you.
2: It's only to kill you. <laughs> <laughs>
5: I think I would do the uh, the shipping package with the head in it because (laughs) persassy impersonance. I think are really important. Yeah,
4: I take it back. Maybe I want deal with it (laughs) persassy on the bead.
2: (laughs) Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Thank you, Carter and Erica, for joining us. Thank you for having us on our inaugural episode of Monster Donut. Yeah, please go ahead and tell the people where they can find you and plug whatever you'd like to plug.
4: You can listen to Seaweed Brain Podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Join us. We predominantly um, encourage people to listen on Spotify because we're doing fun Spotify polls um, for every episode of the TV show now. So you can interact with the episode there. You can find us at Seaweed Brain Podcast on Instagram, at Seaweed on Twitter. And occasionally I make TikToks at Erica.SeaweedBrain. We're also doing live stream watch parties every Tuesday night um, for the run of the show. They will be on our Patreon until um, the finale episode in which everybody is invited to my apartment. uh, I changed the Google Cal event, so now it's on Tuesday. Um, (laughs) Everyone will be invited to my apartment, and I think we'll live stream that one to YouTube so that everybody can can hang out.
2: Yes, and you'll be able to see Phoebe and I there. We will be hanging out. I can't wait. I was thinking about that and I was like, I'm going to be climbing the walls. It's going to be intense. (laughs) We're all going to just have to stand the whole time. I was like, I'm going to have to stand up. (laughs) It's it's actually a standing
4: room only watch party.
3: (laughs) If you're interested in hearing all of our predictions that we recorded before watching through um, the season um, and also a bunch of other fun stuff, you can check us out on Patreon. Also, if you want to buy our merch, um, you can check us out at Monster Donut on Redbubble. It's also in our link tree on all of our social media, where you can find us at PJOPod. Also, if you want to support us in any non-monetary way, leaving us a rating or a view or recommending us to a friend is really awesome. We love hearing from all of y'all and what you think about the show and also about what we're talking about. And yeah, we are going to be doing a wrap-up episode as well. So if you want to send our questions, um, you can do that. through Send us questions. You can do that either through our social media or emailing us at monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com. Next time, episode four.
2: I Plunged to My Death for a Long Time was my favorite chapter in The Lightning Thief.
3: Wow. And yet we didn't talk about it
2: at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing I liked about it, I mean, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. (laughs) Bye, everyone. Bye.
1: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers.